Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast. I am Jared. I'm Nick. And today we continue our exploration of the development of monotheism in the Western world. And today we're going to focus most heavily on uh, the development of what we now know as Christianity and its synthesis into other ideologies during the Roman era, which will eventually give rise to like the Middle Ages. And we'll dig more into the ideologies that come from there in future episodes. But right now we want to focus on this specific era, the development of Christianity, which is a wildly controversial and for some people problematic era of about three centuries from, of course, the uh, assumed uh, 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 death or crucifixion of Jesus until uh, the further like codification of what Christianity becomes under Constantine. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. So to do that, I want to recall our prior episode on the advent of monotheism by the Persians. It is, of course, Zoroastrianism, and uh, I, we highly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode on Zoroastrianism. During that episode, we also discussed its uh, intersection with Judaism, um, specifically during the Babylonian captivity, where the Persian king Cyrus the Great uh, eventually conquers the Babylonians, liberates the Jews, allows them to go back to um, Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and we have essentially the de development of what is called Second Temple Judaism during that time. The reason, one of the things that we talked about in that episode, the reason that this is key is we argue vehemently that this is where Judaism began to adopt a lot of the ideals and basic premises in Zoroastrianism, which again, we're not necessarily going to outline right now. That's in the prior episode, but that's an important developmental step of monotheism. Judaism um, obviously will also act in this episode as a more important bridge to Christianity. Um, so Nick, any thoughts before we kind of get going? Nope. I'm just excited to see where we end up and how we can tell this story. Okay. So without repeating what we did in the last episode or perhaps repeating like the entire Old Testament, we're going to kind of fly through and not even fly through. I'm just going to give mention to the fact that the Jewish narrative stemming all the way back from, of course, the stories of Genesis and Adam through important patriarchs like Abraham um, and Noah. I went a little bit out of order there to, of course, the great kings of uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. We're just kind of flying through all of that right now. And I skipped Moses in there as well. But what I want to focus on is the narrative of those stories and how that narrative develops rather than going through the stories themselves because I'm willing to bet most listeners are aware of all of those stories and the ins and outs and uh, they're really entertaining, actually really good stories. But I want to talk about the development of those. So the written notion of, of basically codifying these stories, many of which borrow elements of stories around them from like Egyptian mythology to Babylonian to Assyrian to, of course, Zoroastrian ideas. A lot of them like are synthesized in this, this like written notion culminating in the formalized compilation of what we call the Pentateuch, which are basically the first five books of the Tanakh, which are part of the Talmud and also include oral Torah, which is known as Mishnah. Um, Later books are then added, and all of those end up being like the Old Testament. Later books are added under Seleucid rule, which is like the leftovers of like the Greeks, basically Alexander's romp east. The Seleucids are left in charge. Um, and the writing itself, the writing and codification of the stories and laws and all that other good stuff was paramount, not just because they wanted to like remember, um, obviously their origin stories, but because of the Hellenization process that was taking place 
by the Greeks. Of course, the Greeks during this Hellenization process were able to spread their ideals, their way of life, all of these types of things across the world, and their ways of doing things were quite powerful. That's how, that's why we call it Hellenization. I want to pause for a second and get Nick's like opinion on this idea that, at least in this telling of it, I'm arguing that Honestly, everything that compiles the Old Testament started to be written down, not necessarily to codify power, like we've argued in the past, but in this case, to preserve a heritage in the face of a outside culture, in this case, the, the Greeks or the Seleucids. What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm not sure that those two things are really completely different things, right? I think if you're writing things down to save your heritage, that itself is trying to preserve some amount of power, at least a power to tell your own story. And you preserve it through whatever conflict is going on at the time. But that's an interesting way to think about it for sure. We can't, again, necessarily have this discussion without also talking about the the Roman Empire. And again, this is a podcast or an episode that is not going to even try and entertain the origins of the Roman Empire and all that other good stuff and how it started as a republic. None of that matters. We're actually entering into about the halfway point in, in Roman rule. Um and we do need to mention one specific Roman character here, um, Pompey, uh, of course, the military leader, eventually politician, is um, responsible in 63 BCE for pu putting this specific region of the world under direct Roman rule, uh, basically tributary Roman rule. Uh, that region, of course, that we're talking about is Judea. This is where the stories will intersect, again, the development um, of Judaism and, of course, within the Roman Empire. Now... This is where I now want to kind of call back a little bit to some prior events that I just skipped um, in the Old Testament narrative. One of the common themes throughout the Old Testament is that when the Jewish people, again, an exceptionalist chosen people, as we talked about in the last episode, have felt overwhelming amounts of adversity, whether we're talking about in Egypt or Babylon or any of these other places, there has been... Um, an otherworldly supernatural power, I, I, obviously God, that has kind of stepped in and paved the way for liberation, whether that is in the form of Moses guiding them out of Egypt, whether that's in the form of Daniel's prophecies, whether that's in the form of Joshua and his, for lack of a better word, ethnic cleansing in Judea, um, to uh, uh, Cyrus the Great and the Persian king that we talked about and his liberation from the Babylonian captivity. So what I'm saying here is there's already a rich heritage within this Old Testament narrative of when faced with overwhelming odds, look to God. God will send usually an individual that will either ideally or materially guide the people from this horrible event or horrible occupation that they're dealing with. What are your thoughts on that? No, I think you nailed it. That, that's that's a, a theme in this history that I think we need to point out because it helps understand how we got here and then what's about to happen. For sure. And there is no more overwhelming odds that are challenging your, your, in this case, your Jewish way of life than the Roman Empire. Like that is as big and oppressive as you can get. So at this point, like what would be, what would people expect to accomplish if they try and revolt directly against the Roman Empire? Well, we know what happened with like Judas Maccabeus, like that, that revolt, uh, although it's, it's great, it's a great story, did not end in actual success, right? Back in what, 167 BCE, but it doesn't end in success. So like military revolt, some sort of protest social movement, that's not going to work. They're going to need some sort of otherworldly figure, i.e. God, to step in and again, once attempt to liberate them from Roman rule. So 
that's what begins to happen. Revolts continue for basically the better part of a century under both Seleucid and Roman rule in the region, in Judea. Um, this is where I now am going to cross over super briefly back to like Roman history. This is like, this is what's going to make this episode kind of difficult to follow is we're telling two different stories that at some point eventually like do synthesize themselves and smash together. We're doing a little Roman history and a little Christian history. And again, for a long period of time, they are, they are separate, but then we all know they become one essentially under Constantine. So Going back to Rome now, after Pompey, there is the rise of of triumvirates under like Julius Caesar, and I don't necessarily want to dig into Julius's history, but I do need to talk about that once he is assassinated, civil war breaks out, and again, that civil war leads to a second triumvirate and more civil war, and eventually his grandnephew, uh, Octavian, is the one that is able to consolidate power. Um, again, Roman historians are probably sitting there like grinding and gnashing their teeth that I just flew through some of the most honestly entertaining history of the Roman era in, in, in a couple of sentences, but that's not what this episode is about. We just need to get to Octavian right now and discuss how he is able to create almost like this cult-like following around his position as emperor, because this is something that we're going to get to, the synthesis of the cult of the emperor with eventually the idea of one God, one truth under Constantine, and this will set us up very well for the middle-aged notion of the divine right to rule. Any thoughts on that, Nick? Because you're going to be our expert on the divine right to rule. Yeah, no, I think that it's an important connection to this sort of idea of the cult of one individual. Like, even though we talk about it in terms of, like, the cult of the office, essentially the position of emperor, it ends up being about one person, right, which is important. So, and that's the most important part of this is, like I said, these are two histories that eventually will become one, and they're developing at the same time. So, hopefully, this is not confusing for listeners. But let's, again, focus right now on Augustus. He has himself named Augustus, uh, essentially, in 27 BCE, which is a super popular name to this day for a number of European rulers. They named themselves Augustus after him um, and basically tried and follow his, his form of rule. After he has himself named Augustus, he has a new constitution in Rome commissioned, which gives the illusion that Rome will more or less still operate as the republic it used to be, but it is merely an illusion. He has executive power over just about everything. In fact, in this constitution, he has himself named, the, the Latin word is princeps civitatis, which basically means first citizen of the state. He is the first citizen. It's, it's, he holds fake annual elections. It looks kind of like a constitutional monarchy in certain ways, but again, it's, it's clear that the Senate answers to him more or less. The important part here is he unleashes mass propaganda campaigns to basically justify the growing cult-like following around him. And again, we can't even blame him fully for this notion of like cult-like followings around like great leaders. He's merely like the apex form of this. His, 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 his grand uncle, so to speak, Julius Caesar, had a cult-like following. And before them, there were great military leaders like Marius and, well, Pompey himself, who we brought up in Sulla, who had these cult-like followings. Augustus just happens to be the one that is able to, like, turn it into, like, such a big cult that he's able to rule an entire empire with this. So these massive propaganda campaigns are undertaken to promote him as like the exceptionalist leader, but also to promote constant expansion and conquest to basically, in theory, Romanize the the heathen barbarians. And when I say heathen, I'm not even using like the, the, the Judeo-Christian version of it yet. This would be just anything un-Roman. 
Um, anyway, Augustus ends up strengthening, strengthening imperialism through his callback to the deification and manufacture of this cult by promoting an idea in Latin called uh, pietas or paetas, which basically means that his followers must be pious to his right to rule. What do you think of that? Yeah, we're seeing obviously a lot of the beginnings of many of the things that will become part of the religion going forward. Right. His notion basically codifies this, that, that it is his right, his call to rule all of Earth's people. It is expansionist right there in nature. And of course, that's going to be important when we shift from Judaism to Christianity. Judaism, not necessarily expansionist by nature, Christianity wholeheartedly is. And again, we're going to see this development. Again, I am not, Augustus is not Christian. It's not even on his radar. Christianity as we know it doesn't even exist yet. But again, they're going to intersect. Okay. Uh, a good example of this are like the statues he even put like everywhere, like throughout the, the Roman Empire. The most famous version is called the Augustus of Prima Porta. It's developed in like the first century. Anyway, if you ever have like an opportunity to, you know, maybe look at this, this statue, it is like the, I mean, it is, it's, 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 it's first century propaganda. I mean, I, it's, he looks, uh, he's huge. He's got like a little angel, like tugging at like his skirt or something like that. Like almost like this is his right. Like the, like even the angels or the gods, the various Roman gods are, are essentially following him forward. He's even pointing forward. He's stepping forward. He's wearing military garb. He's going to keep us safe. He's going to keep us protected. If you live back then, there isn't like social media or the internet or anything like that. There's very few stories or, or, or things being told to you. This is a major piece that eventually ends up in your city. You're going to buy into it. You are, I mean, as easy as we fall into propaganda now, it was even easier back during the Roman Empire. And this like mass propaganda campaign includes like these statues. Um, here's another like easy example of like the propaganda of his ability to keep people safe and bring justice to the world. Um, he ends up building the Temple of Mars. It's commemorating his victory over uh, basically the Senate. See, he recognized that Julius Caesar, his granduncle, was so popular that there were a lot of people that were still upset about his assassination. So he ends up going out and finding, in theory, the assassins, i.e. the senators, and brings them to justice. And then to, of course, celebrate that, he creates this wonderful temple, the Temple to Mars, which is the the god of war in Rome, uh, you know, obviously borrowed from, from Ares in, in Greece. During this time, he also commissions a new foundational story for Rome. I must stress this. Rome's already been around in one form or another for like seven to eight centuries. But he commissions a new story. It's called, and it's super, super popular, it's called the Aeneid which is basically the story of a Trojan hero named Aeneas who somehow escaped the assault on Troy, finds his way to the Italian peninsula, and eventually becomes the the father of what Rome will become. The reason this is important is it's building off already prior and existing knowledge, just like, again, the religions we learn about. It's building off prior knowledge. In this case, the stories of Homer, the Iliad, and maybe to a lesser extent, the Odyssey. It could be part... Uh, 2a or 2b or something like that right whereas the odyssey follows odysseus and his journey to back to ithaca the aeneid follows aeneas and his his journey to that eventually finds him in rome this is also a nod by caesar augustus of their greek roots um clearly uh if we but but not fully greek in that this guy is kind of like a trojan hero that eventually escapes it also will eventually justify his campaigns in greece to further conquer greece and maybe pay them back for these past injustices what do you think of that yeah, I think from an ideological perspective, we've discussed a lot 
um, the idea that the narrative of any ideology, it must retroactively sort of go back and legitimize itself. So it in, either invents or adjusts or both its own history, its own story to explain how it is the legitimate way of thinking of being, uh, in this case, of having power over the world. So Virgil, of course, would be one of the most famous um, um – is the most famous uh, uh, writer of the era, and of course, the A and it is is his. It's it's his work. He was the one that was commissioned, and I think as we're trying to like kind of synthesize and entwine the development of cult like followings around Roman emperors and eventually the development of Christianity, it's no coincidence to me that Virgil makes a later appearance, like. 13 centuries later, essentially, um, when Christianity is the only game in town, and of course the very famous work, uh, The Divine Comedy by Dante. Of course, Virgil is the one that eventually guides Dante uh, on his journey uh, down down south, for lack of a better term, into the, all the various layers of bo the, both purgatory and eventually um, hell. So anyway, it's, it's super interesting that there's that intersection, again, 13 centuries later. Anyway... Keeping with Augustus and trying to get through him relatively quickly, he also began to create mandatory education systems for like upper middle to upper class groups of people, what we might call uh, patricians and maybe even some some well-to-do plebeians as they had spent centuries slowly but surely um, securing better socioeconomic circumstances for themselves. So these education systems are very important. Real quick, before I even go further – um, and discuss like who he got to teach in these education systems. Why is a state education system like, excuse me, let me reframe the question for Nick, my sociologist. What could a state mandated education system be used for if you are Caesar Augustus and you're trying to consolidate power? It's indoctrination. I'm reminded of Louis Althusser's ideological state apparatuses, right? Education is one of them and it's paramount, especially for educating the newer generations and socializing them into the way of thinking and way of being in that society. These education systems taught mostly math, geometry, astronomy, music, and language. These were highly celebrated things to learn about. And, and for that, we could actually give them, give the Romans credit because their education system, I would argue, is much more diverse even back then than ours is now where we're focusing almost solely on STEM. But that's for another episode that I can bitch and moan about. Anyway, um, and, and not coincidentally in, in the Middle Ages when, um, Europe eventually decides to pull itself out of its own like dark ages, these are the same disciplines that will eventually find themselves in things like the trivium and the quadrivium as well. So it'll be kind of like this hearkening back to, to Rome. Anyway, ironically, most of the teachers he gets for the state mandated education system come from Greece. Why would he choose Greek teachers even though the Greeks end up being kind of the bad guy in some of his narratives? I mean, they're the OG intellects if we want to... At least in the Western world yeah, they exactly. are. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, yeah. Okay. He also enhances a somewhat draconian um, law system where... Um, how do I do this without going back to talk about like an ancient Greek basically dictator Draco. Long story short, this draconian system is known as like very legalist where he tries to not just consolidate power but give the illusion of equity by making like all sorts of prosecution and consequence and sanctions almost like flat across the board, like even across the board. But they're very, very draconian in that they're even in that they're super like drastic if you break any of his laws. I don't know if I described that well. Do you want to like add more to like draconian, Nick? No, I think you described like, yeah, you got it. Where 
I don't want to say people were like equal before the law, but that's kind of the sentiment. But the laws were so severe that it didn't really matter if you were equal or not. Like they were, you didn't want to violate the law. They were very, very oppressive. I like that word severe. I think that that was a word. Yeah, I think that makes the most sense. Okay, the consequences are severe. The laws aren't severe. Right. Moving forward as, again, he consolidates power. And again, I want listeners to be keeping this stuff in mind when we get to like Christianity's actual development. It's being developed alongside of these things in like the Roman Empire. He codifies the paterfamilias, which is basically a family structure based on the highest ranking male and him having autocratic rule. And it is attached to notions of what we in the West would call filial piety. In other words, that in the family and even in all other relationships you might have in your life, there is a superior and a subordinate. And as long as everybody in that family knows their role and stays in their lane, that the family structure will be important. But it is not like a circular family structure as we've kind of talked about or dabbled in in other episodes. This is a family structure of hierarchy. And in this case, I don't want to say like oppression. It's not like – you know, dads were fully oppressing their kids. That's not what I'm saying. But there is superiority and subordination. The dad, of course, is to lead, provide, and protect. The wife is there to basically serve and produce heirs. The kids are there to basically serve subservient roles until they are of age. And if they are male and of age, they eventually can go on to have their own paterfamilias. If there happen to be girls, they will be married off to someone else's uh, male heirs. And that system, it's, it's not novel. It's not new in the ancient world by any stretch of the imagination but it becomes codified. And this idea of filial piety eventually makes its way into like a lot of the laws that are passed to make sure that these families, these little hierarchies, uh, maintain purity. We would call this like an ancient like focus on the family. He thought that by building perfect little baby pyramid hierarchies that eventually the Roman hierarchy itself would be stronger, that it would be strong if it was built off of, of course, this very rigid family structure all the way down to the bottom layers of the hierarchy, um, which, again, he saw himself as the father of the Roman family. There's another great art piece that was commissioned during this time. It's called the Imperial Procession on the Era Passis, which was built in like 9 BCE, and it, it has all of the, all these Roman citizens marching. And and essentially he's leading them. He is the leader of this Roman family. Like you see kids and you see some women and you see um, people of different classes. He is the one that is going to guide this new notion of family and family hierarchy forward. To give you an example of like the legalism being synthesized with this, I mean he banned – he like laws banning prostitution. I know that seems kind of – you know, whatever. Like – we also have laws now against prostitution, but th- we have them because of like we could trace these origins of purity and filial piety back to the Roman Empire. Why is it actually banning something like prostitution so controversial in the ancient world, Nick? I mean this whole thing is a story of patriarchy, right? And the attempt at – like yeah, it's not even – we don't have to beat around the bush. Male rulers – to control the sexuality of the females, even in like the family, like the example we're giving, the male husbands to completely control and oppress the sexuality of their wives and so on, right? This idea of the monogamous family and where it originates and things like that. So for a society to ban prostitution, it tells us it's evidence of the patriarchy that existed at the time. And further, like he goes on to make 
all forms of adultery a capital offense. And this goes back to that, that very draconian policy. Like, needless to say, when we introduced the idea of patriarchy, women were prosecuted much more regularly for adultery or adulterous thoughts than men were. But again, that's, that's the patriarchy and the inequity at play there. But adultery is a capital offense. Like, you will die if you somehow potentially damage the sanctity of the paterfamilias. And again, this is Roman. This is not Christian. That's why we're doing this. They, these things will, as they're developing alongside each other, cross paths and cross-pollinate and borrow from each other. Okay. To show how, like, into the family he was, he even takes, and this is like a cute little aside story, but I like it. Like, he takes one of the most famous Roman poets of all time, one of the most celebrated. His name is Ovid. And he basically kicks this dude out, this celebrated poet, this celebrated storyteller. He kicks him out of Rome for his overly sexualized and satirical stories. Um, basically, he thought that some of Ovid's stories were uh, so sexual that people, like, reading or hearing them would then have these impure thoughts, and that might motivate more forms of adultery, thus compromising the sanctity of the pure family. Um, Ovid's, of course, most famous contribution to literature is the story of Narcissus, the individual that fell in love with himself, and we could argue very obviously that maybe he was motivated by his emperor to write about Narcissus in this case. Might be a little tongue-in-cheek there. Anyway, um, we could go on and on with Caesar Augustus, but we really want to kind of get back into this like monotheism. But I do think it was important that we like, again, dabble in this period because the, the policies that he puts in place, the way he rules, the expansion, the propaganda, everything we just talked about is happening alongside the story I'm about to get into, the birth of Christianity. What do you think of that? When we think of Caesar Augustus and, and what I just talked about, again, all too briefly, do you have any like concluding thoughts before we move into like Christianity being developed during that same time? I think it's important, which is why we're doing it like this, it's important to tell the story this way because either people focus on just telling the Roman side of the story or they just focus on telling the Christian side of the story, but then people lose sight of the fact that these were going on at the same time in the same empire, just in different parts, and that when they come together, the synthesis that results, that is the modern Christian religion, is a result of both of those things. So it's basically impossible to understand the aspects of modern Christianity without understanding both of those things and the fact that they temporally were the same, happening at the same time, right? So, yeah. So let's get back into, like, the other part of the Roman Empire, the recently, quote-unquote, conquered part of the empire, Judea. Bridging the gap between the Old Testament, because that's all we really have here on history. I don't have... There's no... There aren't Roman records on this. I, I I hate to be like the asshole, but I'm going to be the asshole. Like if you're a follower of the Christian tradition, there is no real history written of this time period besides what makes it into the New Testament. Like the, and and I, I I stress that the Romans were pretty darn good record keepers, and the fact that they don't mention the events that have become so famous in the Western world might cast some doubt on the validity of the stories. But that's for you to decide. At any rate, the one source we have that attempts to bridge the Old and New Testament um, narratives is the uh, Roman uh, is the Roman Jewish historian Josephus, who lived approximately between 37 and 100 BCE. And um, in his his recollections, in his history, it is be it is very apparent that numerous 
Jewish persons under the oppressive rule of first the Seleucids and then the Romans claim to be the Messiah, especially after the conquest of Pompey, seeing that Roman law and the Romanization under various praetors um, would compromise the exceptionalism and God's law, i.e. the, the or uh, Mosaic law, I should just say, um, that numerous people ended up wanting to be the Messiah. And that goes back to what we kind of started the episode with. There is this like messianic heritage in the Old Testament and who's going to be the next to now liberate this group of people from the oppressive Roman rule. Here's the problem. It's not just oppressive Roman rule. The Jewish, the, the Jewish tribes or the Israelites have also somewhat divided themselves a little bit under disagreements regarding law, narrative, ways of living under the Seleucids and then the Romans. Now, there are more than three sects, but I'm only going to talk about the three primary ones during what we now call Second Temple Judaism. The Pharisees are the most famous. They were originally separatists, um, and they wanted to leave the Seleucid Gentiles. They favored Mosaic law, which is, of course, a very common form of law um, during that time period. There's also the Sadducees, who were a bit more elitist and favored written Torah mixed with a little Greek philosophy, because that's who they're living with. And eventually there would also be the Essenes who are ascetics that essentially leave after the establishment of the second temple. I only mention them because we're going to talk about lost gospels and Dead Sea Scrolls and eventually the Nag Hammadi Library. And some may posit that the Essenes are some of the authors of those other, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. All, however, agreed to this one important notion, the exclusivity of the people and their faith was a must. Hence, they're varied forms of what we would call voice and exit. Nick, what do I mean by voice and exit for a people that feel oppressed? Uh, when people are facing oppression, they basically have two options. They can either voice their opposition, which we would call rebellion or resistance or protest or whatever, however that manifests itself, or exit. They can just leave. That's it. If you are voicing, one of the groups of people you would follow, needless to say, would be your storytellers and your leaders, the rabbis. And this is when we get the rise of the uh, Tanaim and their impact um, developed outside of the temple. Uh, because the temple was considered impure because of the, the, the impure rulers that they were under, Seleucids and then Romans. This is where we get the development of like these community centers um, that eventually became also like holy centers known as synagogues. It's in these places that the Tanaim maintained tradition, law, and culture for the Jewish people, which includes, of course, exclusivity and an identity heavily reliant on the rabbis perpetuating the narrative themselves. There is also, of course, this, especially in the Pharisee courts, this need to maintain Mosaic law. And this is where we get um, the development further, not the invention, but the development further of something known as the Sanhedrin courts. These courts interpreted written God's law in books that have now become very famous like Leviticus and Numbers. I could probably go on and on about some of the laws that are in Leviticus and Numbers that are wildly misinterpreted or cherry-picked today. I don't think this is the episode for that, but I'm sure there are listeners that know some of those laws and how corrupted they have become um, by the – and not even in this case by maybe like mostly Jewish practitioners, but we would argue like mostly Christian practitioners, something like men and other men and all that other good stuff. But that's, again, for a completely different episode. Coinciding with this in terms of Rome is King Herod eventually ends up being installed in Judea in the, by the Roman Senate in 40 BCE, and his projects include expanding the temple itself, which is what makes it impure. 
The Herodian government, King Herod, and again, I'm fast forwarding through some things here. The Herodian government is eventually replaced by a formal Roman prefecture in 6 BCE, which led to the development of a fourth Jewish sect, better known as the Zealots. They thought that violence against the Romans um, and the Sadducees, other Jews, was like the way to accomplish certain goals. Um, which is, you know, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like the zealotry, this idea of zealots being using violence, which we know against Rome is going to fail 10 times out of 10. I kind of think any time that you're facing extreme oppression, there's always going to be it gets more the response becomes more extreme the more extreme the oppression gets right so i think it's just probably inevitable that would there would eventually be another sect that was more violent than the rest yeah the zealots have a very rich history uh well they don't have necessarily the rich history at the time but there is a rich history from that point forward of certain like very extreme sects of judaism calling back to their examples to perhaps justify their more extreme aims later um, which we will probably do episodes, super controversial episodes, perhaps later on in the, in the development of this podcast. Also, I want to say that like the use of violence is completely subjective, right? Even if right. it's futile, it can be viewed as noble depending on the circumstances and so on. Yeah. I mean, for those that are wondering what I'm alluding to, groups that eventually come around in the 20th century, like the Stern Gang and Lehi would, would have certain callbacks to this notion of zealotry. Um, anyway, it's into this context that, of course, Christianity will be born. Now, the sources for the birth of Christianity specifically, as I already mentioned, are really only, at least in terms of Roman sources, appear in the works of Tacitus, but that's not until 116, the year 116. So in theory, 116 years after the events it's supposed to be writing about. It's in his work called The Annals, and in Book 15, Chapter 44, this is like the the lone real big like mention of what may have happened. But I must stress that this is already after Christianity exists. So he's going back as a historian himself. He's a well-respected historian, but he's going back and trying to explain in the first century, like Christians exist, so where do they come from? And he's just he, – this is ha- this is what he has to say. Well, I want to stop there for a second though because I think there's a super important point that like let's say right now we were writing about something that happened in 1900, right? Like basically 100-ish years ago. We as historians would go and find primary sources from that era and compile them into some sort of historical narrative that would be our work. This person does – that's not how they're doing history because like Jared pointed out earlier, there were are no sources, original primary sources from the era. So he's basically trying to write a history of something that was a century prior but has no sources to go off of. If you're getting what I'm alluding to, he's basically making it up as best that he can. Well, and as a Roman historian who himself doesn't have a vested stake in this, he is not Christian. Of course, the other quote-unquote primary sources we're about to, again, deconstruct a little bit would be the Gospels, but they're not primary either, right? The They're decades. They are written, in theory, decades after the death of, of Jesus, who we're about to talk about here. Okay, so this is what uh, Tacitus had to say. Called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And again, that comes from his Annals, Book 15, Chapter 44. We also find out that, of course, Tiberius is not Caesar Augustus who we're talking about. He just follows in, like all the emperors from basically Caesar Augustus on, he basically keeps the same program in place. Yeah, some deviate and go off the rails like a Nero or a Caligula, but regardless, it's it's the same program. That's why we focus on Caesar Augustus. He's the one that starts it. 
Okay. That's it. That's like the real sole major mention in Roman history of Jesus of Nazareth. And again, I got to stress this, listeners. It, it probably hurts to hear it, but this the Romans were pretty good record keepers. Like, how is this it? I mean, Josephus, besides Josephus, who I also mentioned, but for Josephus, like, there are also other messianic figures. So, I mean, go ahead. I don't want to keep harping on this, but it's just like we talked about the fact that any ideology that rises to prominence has to retroactively go back and create their own history to justify their legitimacy. So this individual, uh, at first known as Yeshua, is born, of course, and everyone knows this story, to Mary and Joseph in 5 BCE and presented to Herod 40 days later. The virgin birth notion only appears in two of the synoptic gospels, which we'll talk about what that means here in a second, Matt and Luke. We then, in most of the four synoptic gospels, lose uh, Yeshua between the ages of 12 and 29. Um, we already talked in the last episode on Zoroastrianism, even during this birth period, I think, I, I just, I forgot it, but he's visited by the three wise men, which are, of course, magi, and not coincidentally, in my personal opinion, Magi or Zoroastrian priests, and now we're seeing, of course, this idea of monotheism coming full like circle and clearly perhaps some missing originality, I would dare say, in the later incarnations of monotheism. Anyway, he begins – Jesus begins his – Yeshua, I should say – begins his ministry at the age of 30 after his baptism, of course, by the very famous John the Baptist, whose life – uh, ends rather abruptly and grotesquely. Um, and we get the temptation of Christ during this time period where he spends 40 days in the desert. He also then, if we look at the Synoptic Gospels, um, does a whole bunch of wonderful things. Like there's no denying that, that, that in the Synoptic Gospels, this individual is, if we just turn off our religious hats, which Nick and I don't really have those on, we never do, but if our listeners are willing to, and just look at the him as, in this story, a historical figure, we could debate whether he is or isn't, but it doesn't matter, if we look at him as a historical figure, he is a revolutionary. He is challenging two major institutions, at first, the corruption of rabbinical culture by Pharisees and Sadducees mostly, uh, Essenes, like I said, have dipped out. But he's also challenging the notion or hegemony of Roman imperialism. What do you think of that, Nick? I think all too often Jesus as a historical figure is not framed with that in mind. And I think that he really should be as someone that is resisting the empire essentially from within. Like that's no small thing to be doing. And obviously it has its consequences. We're emphasizing this, listeners, because let me be blunt. Where we're going with this, I'll spill the beans a little bit on our thesis here, is that the Romanization of Christianity that we're about to get to later on in this episode is an absolute hypocrisy if you look at the life and works of Jesus of Nazareth. He would be anything but an empire builder. He would be anything but a person that uses violence to oppress others, at least based on the actions we see in the Synoptic Gospels. And this is where we see the hypocrisy of monotheism really take off, like to a whole new level, is when Christianity, when we contrast what Jesus did with how his words are then taken by the Roman Empire and to be blunt, every other major Christian institution for the next, I don't know, 14, 15, 1600 years, and maybe not every other – well, I, yes, every other major. There are definitely some minor like monasteries that were nonviolent and you know hermit monks and stuff like that. They're definitely individuals. But how does the Catholic Church go on the Crusades after, like, reading, like, what we're about to look at, the Sermon on the Mount, and justify its actions of, like, eating people? Like, what? Who is this? Like, how did this happen? Okay. 
I mean, an easy example of this that 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 is probably my favorite as somebody that finds our current economic system absolutely um, morally bankrupt. The cleansing of the temple of the money changers. Like there is no different way to interpret what Jesus is trying to accomplish there and the message that you're supposed to take this. First, don't corrupt the temple. Fine, got that. It's dirty. But then the second part of this is, who are these people? Like what what are they doing? What is their specific action? They're exchanging money, they're trading, they're they're basically the free market during that time period. <laughs> and what how does he feel about that? He That's overthrows it. their tables, yeah. he whips them, he's beating their asses. So how do we rationalize that even in the modern era? There are a countless number of, and I will call people out individually, that are Americans that are wildly both pro-capitalist and Christian. How can you look at the temple of the, or the example of Jesus in the temple of the money changers and reconcile that? What kind of our favorite term, mental gymnastics, do you have to like engage in to like be a Wall Street tra- trader six days a week and go to church on Sundays? I mean, I don't have that answer, obviously. I have no idea. It's wild to me. That's the hypocrisy. I mean, that's a super easy example. Anyway, after these, after, you know, the, the money changers and all that interesting stuff, uh, you know, walking on water and wa- water into wine and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He has meetings with Nicodemus. Um, and Nicodemus, of course, was a Pharisee and also served as a, a person that served on those courts, the Sanhedrin, who eventually advised Jesus about the notion of being born again, this idea that he is reborn through this baptism process. The only reason I mention that is that's eventually going to be precedent for this idea of being born again and baptism and all that other good stuff. He goes on to provide various other miracles and teachings. And again, in my personal opinion, if we remove the religious part, he sought revolution through individual change tra- in direct contrast to values, ideologies, and practices of Romans and corrupt rabbis. He is seeking to revolutionize the world through the subjectivist revolutionary cause. What's the subjectivist revolutionary cause, Nick, real quickly? Changing yourself internally and this idea that through changing yourself and the way that you think will result in – if everyone does that clearly, then that will result in a different type of world. And he becomes a model for emulation, and this becomes apparent in the uh, most famous sermon he ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount, which appears in uh, Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, and we are going to look at an NIV version of this, if you are curious, not like King James or anything like that. And we're not going to focus on, obviously, the whole thing. I'm just going to pick little things out, and I want Nick to kind of give me his thoughts on those, whether we're talking about Jesus as a revolutionary or how this can later be used by ideologues to develop empire, which are two very contrasting things, but that's the point. Like, we go back into these, this, into monotheism, and it's been used for both. It's been used for liberation and empire building. Okay. Uh, Verse uh, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If we look at ethically constitutive stories, what's Jesus teaching us right there? Oh, actually many things. So first he's talking about, I like just right off the bat, this idea of light and good and Mm -hmm. darkness and evil, which links back to the Zoroastrian that we talked about before. The simple fact that he's saying, let other people see this, to me, starts to give a little bit of credence to this uh, being evangelical, right? And spreading, letting people see what you are doing and so on. He goes on to like further discuss law. I think this is important that Jesus, a revolutionary, 
or some would call a revolutionary, bothers with law at all. But anyway, he does. In verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Oof. What do you think? I mean, I think it's funny because he's straight up saying you don't get to pick and choose. Like, that's it. He goes on with further, like, discussions of hot topics of the time, the same usual, like, things, like murder. I'm not even going to bother with murder. Like, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's fine. Like, yeah, murder sucks. Like, it is what it is. I think adultery is an interesting set that he bothers with here. In verse 28, he says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I love that one so much because of, again, not, not what Jesus is teaching. I actually think that's, that's, that's an interesting thought. But what I do think is important is, Again, the later hypocrisies by everybody. And again, I always get this excuse. Well, Jesus is the model for emulation, but we're imperfect, right? That, Like, right, Adam and Eve, like going all the way back to Genesis, which we skipped in this episode because we're assuming the listeners know it. But yeah, we're imperfect, original sin, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus, of course, dies for all that. So we could, like, essentially, it's like a get out of hell free card. But here he's yeah. very, like, he's very He's clear. like, if you look at a woman lustfully, yeah. gouge out your eye. But in today, we're like, well, he wasn't perfect. So I'm going to go watch porn all day. Like, it's... Well, he was perfect, but I'm not expected to be perfect. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, like right. the whole thing is just a giant, just kind of, I don't know, man. Like, at least in terms of its modern interpretation. He goes on to discuss divorce and oaths. And then, of course, we get the super famous eye for an eye section. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you to not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to one, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Eye for an eye is amazing. It's amazing because that is clearly challenging the corruption of both Rome, which is certainly not living like it is not turning the other cheek like ever. That's, Rome never turns the other cheek. But it's also challenging those those corrupt rabbis, especially the Pharisees, this idea that you, you, you talk a big game, but are you giving? Are you giving enough? And I love this because, again, when we think about some of the most atrocious actions performed in the name of Christianity, and I must stress this, listeners, in the name of Christianity, the Crusades, the transatlantic slave trade, the ethnic cleansing of aboriginals in Australia, the Maori in New Zealand, Native Americans in both North and South America, and this list could go on and on and on, and all of this is done in the name of Christ. How could somebody look at that verse and even perpetuate those actions? How does that happen? How does a Hernan Cortez call himself a, a true Christian and then commit these acts? What do you think? I mean, clearly they're hypocrites. So who's a hypocrite? Like, that's the point. Like, even the... Even the – we could argue even like the Franciscans and Dominicans that are having – using my Cortez example because we'll we'll get to colonialism at some point – they're praying for like the souls of like these indigenous people before they are being crucified or sacrificed or forced to pan for gold against their will in the encomienda system or something like that. But how could they, as priests, knowing the Sermon on the Mount, sit there and literally turn a blind eye to a very clear order? This is an order by Jesus. Mental gymnastics. Like the example we talked about Columbus, obviously, extensively. Go back to that episode if you haven't heard it. 
but De Las Casas calls Columbus out on his bullshit. And then we later find out that Columbus, like, because people argue, well, they were there to, like, save their souls. That's why the friars were with him and et cetera. But then we later find out in the documents in his trial in Spain that he intentionally did not grant the licenses to baptize so that he could sell the indigenous peoples into slavery. So, like, it's not as if, like, well, he didn't know or he was there to save their souls. He clearly knew what he was doing, and he was clearly going against the belief structure at the time. Jesus goes on to spit more hot fire on this topic. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Holy shit. And I can't contain myself anymore. Modern America pauses itself for a lot of people, at least half the population, as a quote-unquote Christian nation. And this is a country that's building walls, refusing immigrants, and has been at war for 94% approximately of its entire history. And here, it clearly, Jesus would agree with nothing that we, that I just mentioned. Nothing. That is mental gymnastics on a whole new level. A whole new level. A whole new level. Well, I think we have to point out, like, like you said earlier, right, this rationalization of, well, Christ was perfect, but I am not, and he died for my sins, therefore I am able to be perfect as long as I accept this fact, etc. The key term there is we have to view those as rationalizations. Christ did not teach these things, right? They come about later to rationalize certain behaviors, and I think that's important for us to understand. He goes on further and says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Holy crap. In the Sermon on the Mount, after filleting everything modern America stands for, he then goes on to say, don't be hypocrites. Not just modern America, most importantly, like the Roman Empire, who we learned from, and the Middle Ages, who Nick's going to talk about. And then there's a clear, like, chain of development here. How is this going to end up getting, like, synthesized into Roman imperialism? Which, again, the reason I'm bringing up, like, modern American examples is because we look at Rome as an inspiration. Yeah. I mean, clearly it's opportunist is what it is. It's a way to synthesize. And I'm not even going to say that Constantine did this, like, on purpose, like he was some mastermind. But that's what ends up happening. As we go further into this Sermon on the Mount, and it doesn't stop, he continues to just, like, go after everyone. You can't serve, verse uh, verse 24 now, where am I at, chapter 7 at this point now? You can't serve both God and money. That's simple. You can't serve both God and money. Oh, but now we've warped that to where I'm actually serving God through my money somehow. Well, yeah, that, that will have its own episode by itself. But yes, I mean, this is obscene. When you actually go into the Sermon on the Mount, and Nick and I don't necessarily have a, a, a quote-unquote dog in this fight. We're, we're not religious of any specific like religion or anything along those lines, nor would I at least. I won't speak for Nick, call myself atheist either. I'm, it, it's just nothingness. Fine. Whatever. Agnosticism. Whatever the cute thing is. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. But um, whatever, <laughs> whatever the cliche is at this point. But here's the thing. Like – how can you look at this and not like think, man, this guy was really trying to accomplish something new and then look at it today and be like, what happened, man? Yeah. Yep. Um, well, let's talk about what happened. Um, we actually already – we do know what happened to him specifically. Um, he – at least in the New Testament, he ends up crucified. Um, 
and uh, and he dies. If you are a believer, his crucifixion takes place under Pilate. He dies for the the sins of all future believers, and the disciples bounce around to become eventually what we call apostles, i.e., the teachers. So some of the teachers of note, Peter ends up dipping out and goes to Rome. Um, he ends up having to experience an upside, do, uh, upside down crucifixion, which is kind of gross, but he eventually becomes the father of the Roman church. And in theory, all like later popes can trace at least some lineage back to Peter, right? That's, that's at least the narrative we're told because of his teaching in Rome. Paul also takes off to Rome. He ends up beheaded. Again, we're seeing martyrdom becomes like prominent. Thomas, a favorite of mine, ends up going to the east. This is very important because I'm about to read some verses from his gospel that accidentally, accidentally in air quotes, got thrown out of the final, final cut of the Bible. But he goes east, um, and his Gnostic gospels eventually like reveal some eastern thought that we've talked about in this podcast before. He also ends up a martyr. Philip, another, he also has a gospel in his name, goes east as well, and the same holds true for what I said for Thomas with Philip. Uh, Matthew ends up going east as well. James, Jesus' brother, ends up the bishop of Jerusalem. And of course, the famous, I'm not going through all of them, but the most famous Judas himself ends up dying through suicide or blowing up, depending on your inversion of the story, or perhaps both, who knows. Judas, of course, uh, ends up being the, the villain forever. Um... And we'll come back to the debate regarding that here in just a second. As word spreads, though, word begins to spread through the Roman Empire, basically starting in what we would call now Palestine, to Asia Minor, which is Turkey, to Greece, of course, most prominently by Paul of Tarsus, um, which is interesting because he originally persecuted the Jews himself, but he ends up converted on, a, on part of his journey, on his road to Damascus. In fact, it's Paul that we will credit with this notion of what Christianity is to fully separate it from Judaism. Again, listeners, Jesus was Jewish and not white. And he died Jewish. He was never Christian. The notion of Christianity comes from Paul on his road to Damascus, where he basically considers himself a follower of Christus, i.e. the Christ, and that makes him a Christian. So anyway, but that's, that's after Jesus has already passed away. His epistles are written about 30 years after the death. So if, and this is, again, what our historians and archaeologists are now telling us, the closest thing we have to a primary source is about three decades after Jesus died. What do you think of that? I always try to think of like, if I had to try to tell the story of something that happened 30 years ago, what that would be like, but it's not going to go well or be accurate, but I hopefully it captures some of the sentiment of what was happening. I don't know. It's Paul that eventually teaches um, that it is through faith alone in Jesus' sacrifice that would lead one to salvation, and that the resurrection was real, and that the apocalypse was nigh. Uh, we're still waiting for that apocalypse, but it was nigh, you know, 2,000 years ago, so... In fact, why – what's the apocalyptic narrative about? Like I, I talked about the messianic narrative and that's where Jesus like comes in as like the ultimate messianic narrative. But what's with the apocalyptic narrative in so many – this is not just in the monotheisms. Like this is still a thing even in like modern, modern Western culture. Like so many of us are waiting for the end of the world, whether it's like aliens or whatever, a pandemic or zombies or whatever. What, what's our fascination with the apocalypse? I like some of the argumentation, like the theory that – if we live under incredibly oppressive regimes or we don't feel free in some capacity, that the apocalyptic narrative sort of reflects and is evidence of that sentiment where it becomes like, 
I think it's Frederick Jameson, the quote, like, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, which I think then Zizek makes even more famous. So, like, in this case, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of Rome or something like that, right? But in any – the narrative is – yeah, I don't know. I don't know what our obsession is with, like – Someday, I mean, in this case, it's someday there will be a great judgment. The world will end and we will all be judged and saved, right? Paul firmly believed that a couple of things were important to help on the path to salvation. And that was asceticism, which is, of course, self-denial. Um, extreme chastity would be something that he really was into. He thought those were really important. Again, this idea of chastity and chasteness. Let's get back to the other side of the story here. I mean, we can even see like echoes of that in the Roman Empire under the draconian laws that Caesar Augustus put in place to maintain filial piety. I mean, like, is there crossover there? Did Paul like know about these laws? I'm sure he did. He lived in the Roman Empire. So, I mean, that's something to think about. Anyway, more commentators. Or he also lived in Rome specifically, not just in like oh, yeah. some distant, like, you know. Yeah. And this is where we see the crossover with like Roman law and perhaps mm -hmm. what would become, because it's during this time that more commentators begin to write down and add interpretations and the synoptic gospels are formed. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all put together approximately, and again, we're trusting our archaeologists and historians here, around 70, um, 70 years after the death of Christ. And they begin to synthesize the events from his birth to the crucifixion, um, and most emphasize the general themes from the Pauline epistles, which of course are like founded on Jesus practicing resistance and through basically love, through love, through love. A lot of them add in the power of like allegory and metaphor, although there are certainly no shortage of literalists in history that argue he literally did turn water into wine or walk on water or any of those other things. Again, it's a debate I don't even care about at this point. Like is the New Testament or even the Old Testament meant to be taken literally or is it all allegory and metaphor? It, it, irrelevant. Luke ends up in his – um well, and I want to say Luke. Luke's already also also dead. But the person writing for Luke, Luke adds in the Acts of the Apostles for self-credibility, basically. Um, and then John, the last of these synoptic gospels, ends up showing up in about 100 AD. And it adds much more to the stories, um, further distinguishing the followers of Christ from other Jewish sects. So even though Paul outlines he is different, the Romans and some people that you might be seeking to convert didn't see them as a completely separate sect yet, even by the first century. That there is enough crossover in belief that Christianity is not fully divorced from Judaism at this point. What do you think of that? Even after a hundred years? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't like they kind of just gloss over this period in history of both Rome and Christianity, I suppose. But this is when the religion is really forming itself and starting to establish itself as its own belief structure. And like you said, it's still not completely split off as its own thing at this point. And again, this is why John is usually cited, obviously, John 3.16 and things like that. Like, this is why it's usually cited as it has a heavier emphasis on the Christology, is what we're calling it, of Jesus. That he is indeed not just another prophet or important player, but actually um, the Son of God and thus later on God himself. That actually is a much more complicated conversation than we're doing it justice to right well, now. Well, I also want to state that, like you mentioned, under their... While they're being ruled, right, they're looking for these messiahs to come and save them from this oppression. 
it's not till after the fact that Jesus becomes the Messiah, right? Like all of these messiahs are coming to the forefront and saying, hey guys, I'm a prophet and etc. It's not till after the fact when this narrative is being written that he actually becomes like Christ. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, and here's the thing, like John is important because here we have like four synoptic gospels, but we know that there were 12 apostles. So what happened to the stories of the other eight teachers? What happened to their narratives? Not just the other eight teachers, but we could argue anyone that had contact with Jesus. Now, we may or may not be doing an episode on Islam in the future here, but most of you that are familiar with Islam, and we've talked about it in other episodes like the Sufi episode, Anything that would be considered a saying of Muhammad was written down and kept. Now, we debate which ones are valid or not, but they were kept. Those are called the hadiths, and they were written during the time of the prophet himself. In this case, we actually have a little bit less of like that first primary source. But here's the thing. Some of these are not just not kept. They're actively like removed from the gospels, and this is how we only end up with four of them. And what we have now, and one of our sources on this, if you are curious readers, and maybe Nick will link it in our program notes if he remembers, is an article called Lost Gospels, Lost No More. And it just gives you a super like, it's written by Tony Burke. It just gives people like a certain, like general framework. It's a super short article. But if you want an introduction to what the Lost Gospels are, or what some call Gnostics, it, it provides a pretty good outline. And so it kind of inspired this section of the episode today. Anyway, I'm not going to quote like a whole lot of Tony Burke here, but I do want to talk about some important things um, that eventually are revealed to us through, again, archaeology and history. One of those most important things are call, is called the Nag Hammadi Library, and it contains other gospels written in the name of the other apostles and other important figures that knew Jesus and paint a very different picture of Jesus than what we have come to understand. My personal favorite, so you're going to get my bias here, and maybe it's my personal favorite because I haven't read all of them. I've only read... Uh, three and a half ish, um, but it is is the Gospel of Thomas, and and it kind of like I said bridges like east and west in terms of 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 uh, basically like the ideas of Jesus. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to pick out some quotes that I think are interesting. So like here we have um, an interesting interesting quote that is very eastern. It's a very eastern sounding Jesus and perhaps one of the reasons that Thomas, the gospel, his gospel was cut out. Jesus said to them, when you make the two into one and when you make the inner like the outer and the outer like the inner and the upper like the lower and when you make male and female into a single one so that the male will not be male nor the female be female when you make eyes in place of an eye a hand in place of a hand, a foot in place of a foot, an image in place of an image then you will enter the kingdom. That's super interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the same like hot fire of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's very different. What do you think of that? That verse 22 in the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, yeah, I like that. I think that you're right that it is somewhat Eastern and relates back to actually much of what we discussed in the episode on Taoism and Sufism. I like it. Yeah, but why would the Romans, or excuse me, before the Romans, why would certain priests who we're about to call out here um, throw this gospel out based on maybe a saying like that? Again, maybe that's not the, the whole reason they threw it out was this one saying, but sayings like that certainly are the reason it got cut. Yeah, it's not clean enough. It's not Western enough. It doesn't tell a very specific story, which they are trying to craft. The Here's verse 18 as, as I'm going back and looking at this on the screen, going back to some of these the disciples said to Jesus, tell us how, how will our end come? Jesus said, have you found the beginning then that you are looking for, the end? 
You see, the end will be where the beginning is. Congratulations to the one who stands at the beginning. That one will know the end, and it will not taste death. Holy crap, circular tribalism. Exactly. Back in the, like, yep. there is no beginning and end. And mm-hmm. oh my God, that is something that is certainly not common in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Well, and that one specifically, right, goes against the whole linear trajectory of Genesis to the apocalypse and so on, right? It's, yep. it's a much more circular story. Verse 16 is an interesting one. We get an angry Jesus a little bit. Jesus said, perhaps people think that I have come to cast peace upon the world. They don't know that I have come to cast conflict upon the earth, fire, sword, and war. For there will be five in a house. There'll be three against two and two against three, father against son and son against father, and they will stand alone. That's not a peaceful Jesus. What do you Mm -hmm. think? Yeah, not, yeah, you're right. They could have kept that one, though, because Rome was into conflict. That yeah. would have been justification for conflict. I wonder why they eh, they could have, could have done that some. Jesus goes on to say, A city built on a high hill and fortified can't fall, nor can it be hidden. What's that mean in terms of Rome? There's a lot going on here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There is a lot going on there. And, like, the city on a hill we know in yeah. the future is going to have all kinds of context. His disciples said, when will you appear to us and when will we see you? Jesus said, when you strip without being shamed and you take your clothes and put them under your feet like little children and trample them, then you will see the son of the living one and you will not be afraid. It's just funny to think about like if these had made it in, right? Like if a church, one of the church rituals was you go on Sunday and everyone takes their clothes off and stomps on them. You know what I mean? Like it's... Jesus said, whoever blasphemes against the Father will be forgiven, and whoever blasphemes against the Son will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either on earth or in heaven. Woo! I like that because it actually does nod a little bit to this notion of Trinitarianism, which was debated at the time, which we're about to talk about. And this kind of actually, like, realizes it. Maybe that's justification for the Trinitarian belief. So be it. But why would you be forgiven for blaspheming against the Father and the Son, but not the Holy Spirit? That's interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, I think it gives credence to this otherworldly authority that is ultimate, right? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, we could spend all day going through, like, the Gospel of Thomas. Philip's pretty good as well. It's a little bit more narrative than Thomas. But anyway, th- there's lots of these. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Mar- Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Q— there's so many different ones. In most of these cases, or not most of these, a lot of these cases, Jesus ends up feeling very, again, quote-unquote, Eastern in his beliefs. Maybe a little Taoist in him, a little Buddhism in him, maybe a little, well, we wouldn't call it Sufism yet. But like like those types of beliefs, some assert, quote-unquote, truths like a virgin birth. Some argue that the resurrection were naive misunderstandings, perhaps. Um, basically, there's no one way to be... Christian in these early years. And I think that frustrated church leaders, some very important church leaders. In fact, there's some that even assert Jesus might have, you know, had affairs of sorts and have children and things along those lines. Uh, the most famous of those would be actually not necessarily the, the did Jesus have um, kids, but the Gospel of Judas, I think, is actually an interesting one because that changes the story quite a bit. It doesn't even change the story a whole heck of a lot in that Jesus still ends up like crucified and all that other stuff, but it makes Judas essentially the hero where of the 12 disciples, Jesus was, Judas was the only one that Jesus trusted enough to be able to basically perform the sacrifice, basically sell Jesus out knowing that Jesus was going to die and that none of the other disciples were strong enough in spirit to be able to take on this mission. And so during that last supper that's, you know, made famous by the Da Vinci painting, um, it is Jesus that whispers to Judas, hey, man, like you got to do this. And so Judas goes and grabs the, the Romans while Jesus slept. I just quoted Ghostface Killer, by the way. Anyway, and and eventually um, – Wu-Tang. Um, but no, eventually 
uh, Jesus, is, of course, ends up crucified. And Judas here is the one that performs the big sacrifice in this gospel because, yeah, Jesus ends up dead, and that's a major sacrifice. But Judas sacrifices his name, his name and his his reputation for all of eternity in this story, and that mm-hmm. is considered the second biggest sacrifice behind Jesus. And even if we look at, like, Judas Iscariot, like the Greek like terminology or the Greek name we have for this man, and most people think that's just his name, it's not his name. Like, the, the fact that the church is so corrupt shows that this man's name has been changed so that we believe him to be the traitor Jew. That's what his name translates as. I promise you, Nick, do you think his mom called him, named him Traitor Jew? I think that was a pretty popular name at the time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and this gospel, this version of Judas as the villain becomes very popular when the church is really trying to separate itself from Judaism, and that's not a coincidence. If we vilify the Jewish people in this way, we can further separate ourselves from them, and we can even make them the villain in the story of the birth of our monotheism. What do you think of that? No, yeah, exactly correct. Yeah. Anyway, when did all this begin to happen? Well, it probably happened quite a bit for the first centuries, but like we have some pretty well documented examples of when these Gnostic or different versions, Gnostic gospels or different versions or understandings of Jesus' life really come from. And the most famous that most people know about come, comes from a church father known as Irenaeus. And I'm going to read a section here from the uh, professor of religion and director of the graduate program on religion from Duke, Elizabeth Clark. This is just her little excerpt. Um, and she basically describes Irenaeus in this way. Irenaeus was a bishop of Lyon in what to, in what today would be France in the later second century. So if you're doing the math, we're, we're moving forward a little bit. He was particularly noted for his writings in which he tried to combat various kinds of so-called heretics of the second century. Most of these were people who would consider themselves Christians. In fact, some of these heretics, such as uh, Marcion and Valent, uh, Valent, Valentinus, clearly thought that they were better Christians and higher kinds of Christians than ordinary run-of-the-mill Christians in the Catholic churches. Irenaeus took it upon himself to expose these kinds of so-called heresies, people that had chosen wrong ways of thinking about Christianity, from his point of view. In an enormous book called Against Heresies, which we're going to read from here in a second, in which he outlined all the difficulties, particularly he said many of these heretics decried the created order. They thought the material world was bad. They didn't honor the God of the Old Testament who was represented as a creator. They didn't honor the law that God gave in the Hebrew Bible, and in fact, that does seem to be the case with some of these so-called heretics. They themselves, however, certainly thought of themselves as being truer and higher kinds of Christians who had gone beyond much of that that the Hebrew Bible said and were now into a different stage. So what 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 Elizabeth Clark here, I mean, that's a super like rudimentary description. She's super smart, but that's just a very basic description to like dig further into this notion that there were different kinds of Christianity in these first couple of centuries. Some of them would be what we would call like Manichaean versions of of Christianity where there's like a dualism to like God. Some of them would even be monophysite, which is super, you know, controversial and that there's only one incarnation of God and that was Jesus himself. If it was just God himself, they just would have remained a Jesus. But what separates them is they do do believe that Jesus was God, but that's his his monophysite, one incarnation. That's it. Obviously, the most popular form were Trinitarian, where they did believe, as we just read in the Gospel of Thomas, that God is contained in three essences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That ends up, as we all know, like, spoiler alert, like, no one does, like, everyone knows this, that ends up being the agreed-upon notion of, like, God, but it takes time. And part of it is dismissing Gospels that could perhaps challenge that notion or challenge the Romanization of the Empire, 
So Irenaeus writes this very famous work called Against Heresies. I'm going to read part of it here. Um, this is, and let me look it up. This is uh, Book 3, Chapter 11. It is super long. But basically he says in, 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 in this Chapter 8, he says, it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. For since there are four zones of the world in which we live, and four principal winds, while the church is scattered throughout all the world, and the pillar and ground, um, Timothy 3.15 of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life. It is fitting that she should have four pillars, breathing out immortality on every side, and vivifying men afresh, from which fact is the evident that the word, the artificer of all, he that sits upon the cherubim, like the angels, and contains all things, he who has manifested to men has given us the gospel under four aspects. So I'm not going to read the whole like little chapter here, but essentially he keeps focusing on the fact that there can only be four notions of this, this, of Jesus. Why, why spend all this time like defending it over like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages? What is Irenaeus after here? He's not, he's just a church leader. This is still the second century. It's still not the major religion of Rome. In fact, Rome is persecuting Christianity still. I mean, this work is basically writing a story, uh, to codify the doctrine of this religious faith. <laughs> and it takes him hundreds and hundreds of pages. So one of the one of the things that's most important that we talked about in the last episode on Zoroastrianism that monotheism gives the world, um, and and I would argue it's not a good gift, but it is a gift, is this notion of one truth. And what Irenaeus is trying to do here very clearly is back the notion of one truth that there can't be comp- competing versions of of Christianity. We need the most linear one truth notion of the works of the time, life and times of Jesus. Now it's not fully linear in that we are promised a return, but until that return comes to fruition, it's relatively linear, right? And that return of course is promised. And he spends so much of against heresies talking about that return in revelations. Like revelations is a focus of Irenaeus, which shows like the church getting a little darker as it becomes more paramount as well, like focusing on the apocalyptic narrative and the end and this promise of, of a future. Uh, we could spend an episode on why the church eventually gets darker and darker over time, but that would be a future episode, as I just said. So what are your thoughts on that? This idea that that this this is justifying a one truth notion of monotheism, getting it back to that, because there were multiple versions of Christianity. In fact, there still are; they're just lesser known. I call them when I'm teaching this in in in, in history courses or whatever the OG Christians, like the original Christians, not necessarily Trinitarian, not necessarily Catholic or Orthodox or later on Protestant. Those are not OG Christians, contrary to popular belief. Yep. And our notion of Christianity is is not directly from the life and time of Jesus; it's from later either church protectors like Irenaeus or state builders like Constantine. What do you think of that? No, I think that the way that we teach this in our ideology course is that monotheism is the birth of this concept of one truth, that there is one universal truth that all must follow and so on. And this work by Irenaeus is an example of trying to establish that one truth. Well, and that one truth would eventually uh, would spread. It would continue to spread. It is undeniable throughout the Roman Empire. And as it's spreading, it is synthesizing some of the ideals that we talked about, you know, earlier in this episode, um, codified by Caesar Augustus long after he's dead. What things do you think were as these gospels begin to spread throughout the Roman Empire and the appeal of Christianity spreads to various people? as a movement of resistance or defiance to Rome, which would be popular during this time, especially as Rome began to suck. Um, 
what parts of Rome you think eventually made it into what we would call Christianity and vice versa, I guess. What do you think? I mean, everything that we've talked about thus far, I think the cult of the emperor makes its way in there in some sort of manifestation. Patrofamilia for sure makes its way in there, as does monogamy and uh, like the emphasis on adultery, prostitution, so on. Okay. And, and legalism, I would argue yep, as well, would be sure. important. Now, some of those things also existed in rabbinical culture before Rome, but I think Rome helped further codify those. So we could argue that there is like this reflexive relationship there. Um, but we do know that the religion did spread. It spread so much that eventually a Roman leader, um, named, uh, Diocletian, um, decides he's going to commit to like one last, like, hurrah of persecution against Christians and Jews. He would be what we would now call pagan. He still believed in like the old, old gods. And whether he believed in them or not is debatable. But he is an emperor. He has somewhat of his own cult-like following, although at this point it's debated because there's like rival emperors around. It's been, the empire's been split. In fact, he's responsible for splitting it into a tetrarchy, which is like four little pieces. Eventually, the two pieces on each side just kind of coalesce and we have like Western and Eastern Rome. Anyway, Diocletian at this point has kind of oriented the interest of the empire east for like trade purposes and stuff with Persians and blah, 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 blah. The reason I mention him, though, is he's like this last hurrah of, again, persecuting Christians. He's even split the empire up to like more properly administer it both – and he actually changes the economy quite a bit too, but we don't have time to talk about that. But to better administer it into these things that eventually are named after him, dioceses, which will play a role obviously in the proliferation of Christianity later, even though he himself is certainly not Christian. I mention him because eventually like the divides in his reforms that he was committed to, some economic, some political, and some regarding the persecution of Christians led to the rise of a rival leader named Constantine. And after a civil war, eventually Constantine himself uh, adopts Christianity and um, even issues in 313 the Edict of Milan, which basically stops the persecution of 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 other non quote unquote pagan religions. So it's basically stops, gives some religious plurality to the Roman empire, but he's Christian. He is Christian. And eventually he decides he wants to, when he is able to consolidate power under the cult of him now, a cult so strong that rather than building a few cute statues like Augustus did, he builds an entire city named after him, Constantinople on the existing ruins of Byzantium. But on Constantinople, that's very cult-like also decides he's going to further codify Christianity. And he holds a council with all of his bishops that he has now placed in Diocletian's diocese. They hold this council, and it is one of the most famous councils that most of our listeners have probably heard of. It is the Council of Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed is, it basically becomes canon. And they further codify what the Gospels are going to look like. Um, the Nicene Creed is, and I will verbatim, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth for the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And believe one 
holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, while listeners may have think may think that sounded like a like a lot listening to it on a podcast, that's a super short way to just to codify Christianity. Rather than having your future converts, which you're going to basically make everybody else in your empire now convert to, read the entire New Testament, which is still being like codified at this time. Here's a cute little, essentially, and I am using this intentionally, pledge of allegiance to Constantine and his belief system. This is a creed. This is what you will now believe. This is what you must utter when you attend now church services that eventually under certain leaders become mandated. Theodosius takes this to a whole new level. We're not going to spend any time on him, but he's the one that makes like Christianity like mandatory in the Roman Empire. He's like the very next emperor. Like this is – I mean what do you think of this? This Nicene Creed is sometimes often – it's not even sometimes. It's often celebrated by the Catholic Church. Yeah. Catholic, by the word, was the Greek word for universal. That's where it comes from. He's creating the universal Christianity at this point in time. But back to the question I was trying to ask Nick. Like, what do you think of when you hear this Nicene Creed as like, again, this is some sort of like oath, this like oath to being like, this is who I am now. It's kind of, to me, it's gross. It's freaking gross. I'll just say it. It's gross. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very interesting to think about the history of the Christian religion and how it hinges on the belief system of one leader in Rome and how the history of that religion, that belief structure would have been so different had it not been for Constantine. Like who knows where it would have ended up, but it's debatable whether it ever would have been a world religion, which is very interesting to think about. Right. I mean, this council is, I mean, it does, it shapes what Christianity would become. And unfortunately, and I do mean this wholeheartedly, unfortunately, it's why we have the various versions of Christianity we have today, the good and the bad. Like, I, like, yes, I mean, like, that's the point here. Like this notion that there is one way, one approach, and obviously we know there's not obviously one approach, whereas Christianity would not have fractured into so many different like practices from, again, orthodoxy later on and Catholic Catholicism to the various Protestantisms, um, and I say Protestantisms, to even some other like smaller versions, which are actually quite big, but like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses versions or Mormon versions. It can't be contained in one, no matter how much people want to try and yet every single one of those fractures posits itself as the one crazy so many competing one truths right um also like this is the point in history of this ideology where this way of thinking and believing gets empowered by being consolidated with an incredibly powerful empire Yes. So yeah. it gains legitimacy, right? And it's, that's a crucial point in the history of this belief structure. And, and, and as this is, this, this episode's mostly, like, again, continue our discussion of, like, monotheism and its, and its ideological impact on the world, essentially. That's really what this, this series is when we started with Zoroastrianism. But, like, one thing we must understand, and this is, again, probably going to be offensive to a, a listener or two or a lot. Christianity, as we know and love it, would not exist without Rome. But vice versa, Rome would exist and clearly did without Christianity. So that's one of those most important things that, again, without the spread of the Roman Empire and folks like Irenaeus and Constantine and using the vehicles provided by the cult of the emperor, this would have just been another mystery cult that has become like just a footnote in history, like the Mithras cult or whatever, whatever mystery cult you can think of in, in the ancient world. A unique set of circumstances took place for this to spread. And again, if this happens any like if 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 this story were to take place in I don't know whatever, 
I don't know, Patagonia at the same exact time, like this would, no one would have ever heard this story. Although I do want to just point out that the believers clearly would point to this convergence and coincidence of all of these events leading Christianity to become this universal religion as like, yes, obviously that's the case. That gives it more credence as the universal truth. For those that are curious, the final like consolidated version of the 27 standard books that become New Testament canon um, at least in the words of Tony Burke, our researcher here, he argues that this takes place in 367 during uh, in something called the 39th Festal Letter. And it is a bishop, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, that finally gives us his final stamp of approval on the 27 agreed upon New Testament canon. So like 367. So about, I don't know, whatever that is, 40 some odd years after the Council of Nicaea, we have our final, our final draft of the New Testament. Now, of course, Nick's going to teach us in the very next episode about different drafts, like the King James Version and things like that, but for this final draft, 367. So we've gone through probably an all-too-brief history of inarguably the most popular religion in the world to this day, with over 2 billion followers, Islam obviously a, a, a close second, but regardless, the most popular religion in the world today, and likely ruffled a number of different feathers that are of our listeners. Nick, what what can we make of this very important and I I can't stress the importance of this because again there are 2 billion people that subscribe to this belief structure and it's not just them. Our world has been shaped by it from basically the the Roman Empire forward the Western world clearly has been shaped by it, but we could also argue other parts of the world when we brought up like colonial examples, colonialism was a thing and it used monotheism as its justice or its rationalization. So it went and affected other parts of the world too. What, what kind of thoughts do you have on this? I guess like to kind of conclude this episode as we move forward into this exploration of monotheism's grip on ideology. I think your point is key that to this day, even if you aren't a believer in Christianity or any type of monotheism, you absolutely cannot deny the way that it impacts the way how we think because it's been so influential over time. These concepts like patrifamilia, an emphasis on the family, and it's like that still is part of just general culture, even if you don't believe to the religious structure in any way. So there are all of these things, this linear thinking, this concept of one truth, right? All of these ways of thinking that make up the monotheistic faith structure that we still are, I don't want to say forced, but you have no real choice but to not believe in those things because even if you aren't religious and you're getting it from like church as an example or from reading the text yourself, it's now permeated our society so much that it's just part of the way that we live our lives that we take all of these things for granted. And like, there's no denying that. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I think we've kind of wrapped up this episode. We will continue this exploration of monotheism's development and grip on the way we think, um, on the, in the very next episode. So let's, uh, Let's take us home, man. Find us online at revolutionandideology.com. If you want to contact us, you can do so at hello at revolutionandideology.com. Um, we have a Facebook page. You can like us there. We also have a YouTube channel where we post uh, the audio of all of our episodes and other videos that we create just for entertainment purposes or for our classes that we teach online or other things like that. If you really, really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon, and that helps us to have a little more time to prepare and put together our episodes. Yeah, I'm Nick.
I'm Jared. Later.